0: Well, you don't have to have lived long in this world to have learned that good news rarely comes from a graveyard. The reason we're gathered here this morning is because that's precisely what has happened. Against all odds, good news burst forth from a sealed tomb. Jesus, who had been crucified, died, and was buried, was resurrected from the dead. And along with his body every promise and every hope for the world and it's by his resurrection that jesus distinguishes himself from every other religious leader who has walked the face of this earth at any time in history there are many who have come claiming to be from sent from god many who have uh, been been actually sent from god many who have taught great things many have lived lives that we would look at and recognize there is something noble something admirable in the way that they lived and yet for every one of those religious leaders who has walked the face of the earth uh, the lasting monument for every one of them is a grave marker that indicates the space is occupied except for jesus christ jesus opened his tomb in order that we might be able to peek inside and recognize that the grave is empty because he's not there. While he was dead, he has risen from the dead. He is the one that is not only sent from God, he is the one who is God incarnated, just as was prophesied, just as he declared, and just as all who recognize the significance of the resurrection know and believe. And it's also important that we recognize that this is not just a matter of some religious folklore. The resurrection is a historical and a verifiable action. Jesus appeared to thousands of people after his resurrection. Some Bible scholars have noted that it is quite possible, taking the accounts that we find in the Gospels, and in comparing other historical sources that are almost unquestioned, that more people likely saw Jesus after his resurrection than ever saw Napoleon after his failure at Waterloo. And yet, rarely will you find a college campus or historian that doubts that Napoleon actually lived after the battle. There was no report that he died. Why would we doubt that he lived? Just because he was in exile and nobody saw him? Why should we doubt that? And yet more people saw Jesus after they saw that he was dead, which would capture most people's attention, than ever saw Napoleon. Because the resurrection is real, hundreds of millions of people throughout the world gather this day with others who know, who hope, and who celebrate the reality of God's resignation, uh, resurrection. They come not only to remember, but they come to rejoice, they come to reflect on the significance of Jesus Christ crucified and Him alive again. This morning what I wanna do is really reflect on some of the testimonies that we have already heard given to us by God's word. In four testimonies, three of which we've heard read for us this morning, and the fourth is actually a continuation of a conversation Uh, that took place after Jesus was raised. And the reason I want to reflect on them is because they are as pertinent for us today as they were for those who first heard the conversations, first partook in the conversations in AD 33. And each of these conversations can easily be summarized in a simple two word phrase that is a message for us and together they are vitally important and instructive for us today. The first one message in the conversation is simply no fear. We find that in Matthew 28. So, on that first Easter morning, as we heard earlier, a group of women went to Jesus' tomb, and they were somewhat startled and confused when they found it opened, empty, and unguarded. They were flat out freaked out when an angel showed up to explain to them what the problem was. Why they, weren't, uh, why they weren't finding what they were expecting to find. His question, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Jesus is not here. He has risen just as he said he would. And if that wasn't freakish enough, after the angel disappears and they are beginning to make their journey back home, Jesus himself appears to them. And Jesus, in this conversation, says to the women, Do not be afraid. A little later, Jesus actually met with the disciples. And as he appeared to his disciples, he addressed them about their fears, (laughs) saying essentially the same thing. Do not be afraid. The question would be, what is it that they would be afraid of? Well, the first would be that they thought they were seeing a ghost. I mean, they knew that he was dead. And despite people thinking that they're just people were primitive and they didn't understand death when they saw it, they understood death. They understood dead is dead. Even if they had seen the princess bride, like most of us have seen, and have heard that there is dead, dead, and mostly dead, they understood that concept doesn't really apply to real life they knew death. They had experienced death in a way that most of us have not because it was something that they were not sheltered from as we often are. And so they had seen him crucified. They had known that his body was prepared for burial by people who do that and could tell the difference between a cold corpse and a body that is still breathing. They had known that his tomb was sealed and guarded. And here he was standing before them, And the fact is, if any of us were standing there, we'd have been freaking out too because dead people don't come back. And there he is standing before them. And so they were afraid. And so his first words, do not be afraid. But beyond them being afraid of the seeing of the ghost, having been convinced that this guy who was dead is now alive, I suspect that many of them also were afraid of possible retribution. Every one of them had failed him. Every one of them had denied or wandered from him. And now here he is back again, having made the promise that they did not believe and everyone had wandered and perhaps they were afraid, if not retribution, because they knew that of his great compassion and love, but perhaps just re- rejection. They failed. They had proven themselves unworthy of this one who had made all promises. There's a number of fears that were no doubt going through their minds that were affecting them, their process of thinking, their just state of being. And I probably don't have to describe to you what fear does to us, or even how easily fear can appear to us, even through the simplest of things. I remember reading of a man who was getting ready to take uh, a number of uh, airplane trips, or uh, be on a lot of airplanes, traveling in different parts of the world. And just because he was a conscientious man, he decided that he would up his family's insurance with a relatively cheap policy to uh, increase uh, supplemental insurance for his family, $100,000 in case something happened to him while he was gone. And so as everything was in order and the day came for him to begin his trips, he had checked in at the airport plenty of time before his plane was to leave and so he settled in, decided to grab some lunch at the little Chinese um, restaurant that was in the airport And after he ate his meal and he opened his fortune cookie that said, a recent investment will pay big dividends. (laughs) We begin to worry and to fear at the simplest things. And it grips us and it affects us. Years ago, the newspaper columnist Ann Landers, who would write uh, advice columns to people that would write in with their problems, she was asked, if there was any theme that was more common than any others that she received, what was it that just kind of outpaced all the other concerns that people would write to her about? And she said that fear was probably more than double all of the other questions that she was asked combined. Fear grips us. Fear immobilizes us. Fear can stunt us. And one of the things that we understand from the testimony here is that fear is not limited to spiritual lightweights. The disciples themselves were experiencing fear. Those who had walked with Jesus, who knew more than we do, because not only did they learn from him, they experienced him physically. They understood what we long to experience and what we grow and desire to experience. And yet they were experiencing fear. Maybe you're here this morning, in fact, no doubt many of you are, who are living with fear. It may be a health issue. It may be a job or a financial issue. It may be fear of rejection in a relationship. Fear comes in a number of colors and shapes and sizes. Jesus' message to us through the disciples that day is, do not be afraid. For Jesus says, I have overcome the world. It's interesting, in Romans 8, we are told that the crucifixion is the grounds upon which we understand that all of our hopes should be built and that all of our fears should be pushed aside. Because as Paul writes with God's inspiration, that he who has not spared his own son, how much more will he not give to us as we have need, those who belong to him? We have the testimony of the crucifixion of God's love that eradicates our fears. But more than that, we have the testimony of the resurrection. Christ, who had been crucified, has been risen from the dead and is the assurance of all of God's promises. He is now alive and interceding on behalf of you and me. The second conversation that we find in Luke 24 would be summarized as this, touch me. See, when Jesus did appear to the disciples, when they were all frightened about seeing a ghost, all of them were present except for one, Thomas. And when Thomas got back and they told, the other disciples told him of their encounter with Jesus, he was incredulous. Why? Because dead men don't rise from the grave, And so he declared to them, his friends, his colleagues of years, those who respected, those he had argued with and debated with, unless I see, unless I can put my own finger in the wounds in his hands, my hand in the wound in his side, I will never believe. About a week later, Jesus showed up again while the disciples were assembled. And he walked over to Thomas. No wonder, no question, or I mean, certainly wonder what it would be that uh, Thomas might have been thinking as Jesus was approaching. First of all, he's probably thinking, Is this a ghost? Is this a joke? And finally, Oh no. And Jesus simply says, Touch me. And as Thomas did, Blessed are you, Thomas, for you believe because you have seen and touched. Blessed all the more are those who believe who have not seen. Thomas and the other disciples learned an important lesson that day, one that's important for us to remember as well. And particularly, they learned that Jesus is not angry with, nor is he afraid of any questions or any honest doubts. In fact, Jesus invites them, invites you and me to expose them, to raise them. And if you have any questions, to come to him and seek him to reach out to touch or be touched by him, though now not with physical hands. But God, who is the creator of all that is physical, is beyond that which is physical. And by his power, he can enable us to see what we cannot see with eyes and to understand what we cannot validate in other ways. And is supported by history. As I think about Jesus' response, it's a reminder of how different he is than so many religious leaders who demand blind faith and will reject you if you don't offer it. And as I think about Jesus' interaction with Thomas, I'm also reminded how different Jesus is than many of us by instinct are inclined to believe, who believe that if we have our doubts, if we are to express them, if we have questions, if we, you just wonder that somehow we're disqualified from fellowship with him. It's not the Jesus that we see as he is encountering people who are broken and flawed and limited as you and I are. He approaches, he engages, he understands our limitations, and he says, raise your doubts, raise your questions, ask them, bring them. He's not afraid of those. And he doesn't reject anyone who has honest doubts and honest questions. He says, rather, come and see for yourself whether or not I am real. And so I would encourage you this morning to not be afraid of your doubts, but to raise them, expose them, ask your questions. But I would ask you two things as you do it. First, that you don't enthrone your doubts even when you're asking them. So what I mean by this is we just have this tendency of... Requiring God to prove himself to us, and yet we allow our doubts to go unquestioned. They are enthroned, and we never question our doubts unless somebody proves them wrong. But the very nature of our doubts is because we know that there are things we don't know. We are limited. And so therefore, while it's appropriate to be asking God questions that we do not understand, the doubts that we have to be raising them with him, why don't we doubt our doubts? Why don't we demand from our doubts to prove themselves the way we demand from God? And the interesting thing is God has already proven himself and the resurrection is the ultimate proof of that. Not only was it prophesied, but we tend to look at it, even those of us who believe and say, well, that was a neat trick, but show me something else to prove yourself, God. Don't be afraid of your doubts, but don't enthrone them either. Along with that then, consider the facts. Consider the evidence review the history because i am convinced as there are millions of others that if you are honestly review the evidence and use the same weight that you use on any other historical event you will be convinced of the validity and the veracity of the resurrection which is the proof of everything that jesus promised the third conversation is this come arise in this way, follow me. And this is the continuation of a conversation that Jesus had with with Thomas, found in John 21. And it seems that after Jesus was done with Thomas, then he goes to Peter. And he looked Peter squarely in the eye, and he says simply, follow me. And the message that Jesus was offering to Peter at that point is, look, if you believe that I am the Son of God, the resurrected savior of the world. And if you love me, then follow me. Follow my teaching. Follow my example. Love the people that I love and love them in the way that I love them. Serve people. Care for those who are hurting. Share with those who are in need. Remember those who are are lonely and who are forgotten. And in this way, you are taking up your cross and following me. Because if you're going to follow me, you're going to take a cross. In other words, it's not that we are going to be sacrificed for all of humanity. Christ has already been done that way. But Jesus says to follow me does involve trails that sometimes are treacherous, difficult. And you will encounter the hardships. In fact, not only is that part of it, but that's part of what, his prescription. We are called to pick up the cross on the, for the sake of others, sacrifice, even suffer for the benefit of others, even as he has done for us. And Jesus says simply, follow me, but if you will follow me, take your cross and follow me. Now, I have to admit that whenever I hear, whether it's somebody reading out loud the testimony of Jesus saying, follow me, or whether in my own time in reading the Bible that I hear that, or just in a time of prayer that the Holy Spirit, I believe, is prompting me and bringing that invitation to mind, my often reaction is, of course, I will follow you. Like the disciples, where else would I go? But as often as I hear that voice, almost as often, or maybe just as often, I hear another voice that says, wait a minute, Uh, follow me is fine, but where are you going? And not only where are you going, but what route are you planning on taking? Because I might have a better one. See, I have one that doesn't have the hazards in it. I don't have one that might not be treacherous. It's the voice of my flesh. And I have to continually, day in and day out, ask myself which voice is it that I'm going to listen to? Follow me or wait a minute? And I'm not the only one. All of us have that same question, same issue, that we have to choose what voice that we are going to listen to. We listen to the one that says follow me but we understand that following may mean suffering and difficulty and sacrifice for other on the road to the promise of the peace and the joy that I so desperately want. The other one says, I'll give you comfort now. Have no idea where we're gonna go and isn't gonna probably end anywhere, certainly anywhere nice, but the ride will seem better. And I have to be focused on the imitation of the one who has loved us. To follow him and recognize what comes with following him. And the final conversation that I just want to highlight this morning, again, we find in Matthew 28. As Jesus was gathered with all of his disciples at this point, and he said just before he went to heaven, he tells his disciples, go out or go forth. Go and make disciples of people from every tribe, every nation, all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. This is known as the Great Commission, a commission for you and for me who are called and are willing to follow Jesus Christ, they're also along with that are told that we are to go out and to make disciples of the nations. It's a call to be able to tell all of your neighbors and the nations of the good news that did come from a graveyard. That he who is dead has risen and demonstrated that he is God and that the hope that they long for is found in him. Now sometimes when I think of this passage or the Great Commission itself, I wonder what the disciples who first heard it first thought. Since we're told over and again they're a lot like us, my assumption is that their first thought was, wow, and then are you kidding me? How am I going to do this? How in the world am I going to reach the world? How in the world am I going to change the world? How am I going to reach people who who hate me? How am I going to accomplish this? And I think that same thought paralyzes many of us from benefiting from the conversation that Jesus has recorded for us. It's a story a number of years ago that is stuck in my mind, the story of Steve Jobs as he was uh, really ready to take Apple Computer to a, a new level. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple Computer, realized that to be where they needed to be, he needed somebody else to take on the CEO role, somebody with the business experience. And so he approached John Scully, who at the time was the chairman of Pepsi Corporation. And he invited him to leave this cushy job at this proven, successful corporation of high esteem, and in one sense, low pressure, because in his business, he didn't even have to be number one. He was successful, and everybody admired him, even when he wasn't even overcoming Coke. So he was number two in his own field, and yet he was successful. And because most people are addicted to sugar, he was guaranteed to continue to go on. Um, I mean, it was like a no-lose job. And this computer thing, this fad, You gotta be kidding me. Everybody's gonna want a computer in their own house. Who's gonna want this? So this guy was asked to leave the security and the prestige of a job with Pepsi Corporation to jump on board with a rising fad. And I suspect that there was some hesitation on Scully. I mean, he wasn't a dummy or he wouldn't have been in the position he was in in the first place. Because as the story is recorded, there was a point in the conversation Where Steve Jobs just looked him in the eye and said, listen, do you want to sell sugar water for the rest of your life or do you want to revolutionize the world? And he was hooked. This call to those who are followers of Jesus Christ to go and make disciples is the same call. It doesn't require the aptitude of a Steve Jobs or a John Scully. It requires a willingness to follow a willingness to believe the promise of Jesus that he who is in you is greater than he is in the world and he will never forsake you. And the fact that we can't accomplish what we're called to accomplish is irrelevant because he will, he has promised and he said he will do it through his people. What it requires is your willingness to simply step out and engage somebody to encourage them to believe and to help them in understanding the difficulties of this life and the difficulties of our faith and remind them of Jesus the power of his resurrection because that is our hope and that is our assurance along with Jesus' promise in this conversation that we need to remind ourselves daily I am always with you four conversations after the resurrection that are powerful in their own right and yet together together They actually comprise a composite of the Christian life. See the first two, do not fear and touch me. They address things that hinder our faith or actually plague us in everyday life. Fear and doubt, stunt us, stymie us in anything that we're doing and particularly as we're called to follow Jesus. And Jesus' instruction, is do not fear. He didn't say there's no reason to fear. There's a lot of frightening things in this life. There is reason to fear. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us even more reason to not fear. And you don't have to worry about your doubts or fear that you'll be rejected because you have them. The love of God, which has been demonstrated in the person of Christ, says let's deal with this. Let's talk about it with the promise that if you take these things to God, you will be convinced. And while the first two deal with the difficulties in our lives, the last two give us the direction that we so long for and purpose. To follow Jesus and to know that following means being used To make a difference in the world. And while we know that we're not capable, we have the promise of the resurrection. This is the power of the gospel of the resurrection of our Lord. This is the